Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast release by the graduate students in the University of Florida Department of Clinical and Health Psychology. Today, I'm going to answer the question, what is neuropsychology? This podcast is designed for students and others in the broader internet community who are interested to learn more about this exciting field in psychology. The field is diverse and very interesting, so I'm going to devote the next half hour to answering this question. Along the way, I will teach you about what neuropsychologists do in different careers and how you too can become a neuropsychologist. Quickly, let me introduce myself. My name is Callie Tyner and I am a student earning my PhD in neuropsychology. My research and clinical interests include traumatic brain injury, attention, and psychometrics. I have brought this information together for you today, and I am recording it with the help of a friend of mine, Callaway Johnson. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Callaway Johnson. I'm an undergraduate student majoring in psychology. Now that you know who we are, let us start answering the question. What is neuropsychology? According to the definition written in 1996 by the American Psychological Association's Council of Representatives, quote, Clinical neuropsychology is a specialty that applies principles of assessment and intervention based upon the scientific study of human behavior as it relates to normal and abnormal functioning of the central nervous system. The specialty is dedicated to enhancing the understanding of brain behavior relationships and the application of such knowledge to human problems. Whoa, that was a lot. Can you break that down? What is the central nervous system? Well, the central nervous system includes the brain and spinal cord. These are the body systems that take in information from our environment, make sense of it, and coordinate the actions of our bodies. Needless to say, the central nervous system is pretty important. Neuropsychologists study its normal function as well as what happens when things go wrong. The idea of brain-behavior relationships is also really important for understanding neuropsychology. This means understanding how our brains do things like form memories, coordinate movements, and feel emotions. Neuropsychologists try to understand how these human behaviors are produced by our brains and how brain damage changes them. Wow, that's fascinating. So now you know just a little bit about what neuropsychology is. Are you interested to learn more? If so, keep listening. Start understanding what it means to be a neuropsychologist it is important to know that all neuropsychologists are also psychologists. Psychologists can do many things, and neuropsychology is just one specialization. But what are the different career paths available to neuropsychologists? I'm glad you asked this. This brings us to our first segment. Careers in Neuropsychology Once someone has completed the necessary trainings to become a neuropsychologist, there are many career directions that he or she may go in. Primarily, neuropsychologists work in hospitals, private practices, or other medical-type clinics doing what is called clinical neuropsychology. From here, certain clinical neuropsychologists may gain specialized knowledge in the legal system, practicing what is known as forensic neuropsychology. Forensic neuropsychologists conduct assessments and evaluations of individuals who are participating in legal cases either as the accused or as accusers. Other neuropsychologists may choose instead to focus on conducting scientific research to better understand brain behavior relationships. 
They may work for a university, a company, or an institute conducting cutting-edge research. Still, others may work as professors, teaching the next generation of neuropsychologists. I see. That's a lot of different career choices. How could someone know which one is right for them? Well, let me walk you through some of the basics of these fascinating career choices. To begin, I'll first describe clinical neuropsychology. As I mentioned before, neuropsychology is a subspecialty of clinical psychology. So neuropsychologists are trained in all the basics of psychology, including things like mental health assessment and psychotherapeutic treatment. Yet neuropsychologists are trained to do so much more. One organization of neuropsychologists, the National Academy of Neuropsychology, or NAN, released a definition on the duties of clinical neuropsychologists in 2001. To quote the beginning of this definition, a clinical neuropsychologist is a professional within the field of psychology with special expertise in the applied science of brain behavior relationships. Clinical neuropsychologists use this knowledge in the assessment, diagnosis, treatment, and or rehabilitation of patients across the lifespan with neurological, medical, neurodevelopmental, and psychiatric conditions, as well as other cognitive and learning disorders. Whoa, that was a lot. Can you explain that in simpler terms? Sure. Let me break that down into the two main parts. First, it says that clinical neuropsychologists do assessment, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation. Put another way, they use specialized techniques to find out what is going wrong in their patients' brains and then work to make things better. Second, it says that clinical neuropsychologists work with people of all ages with any type of neurological, medical, psychiatric, or other disorder that can affect the brain. This means conditions like Alzheimer's disease, autism, traumatic brain injuries, seizures, or cancer, to name a few. As you can see, there's a wide range of different diseases that can be helped by clinical neuropsychologists. That seems like a lot of responsibilities. How do clinical neuropsychologists do all of this? Well, they use their vast knowledge of the brain, or its neuroanatomy, and their understanding of the connections between the brain and different behaviors. Remember, brain-behavior relationships let me illustrate with an example. Let's pretend you come to me with a certain problem. For instance, you're having trouble remembering things or forgetting words that you try to think of in conversation. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. I'm always so, what's the word, forgetful. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's just the type of problem a neuropsychologist can help with. Since I know what parts of your brain anatomy are involved in memory, I can have a pretty good idea of what may be going on within your brain. So I can give you specialized tests that I know require different parts of your brain, like vocabulary tests or card games, which would help me then narrow down what parts of your brain may be damaged, if any. Then I can take all this information together and diagnose your problem. Maybe you have a condition like Alzheimer's disease, or maybe you're having quiet seizures or staring spells, or maybe you're just overworked, overtired, or depressed. I am a stressed out student, so that wouldn't be out of the question. Right. Then these diagnoses can often be confirmed by other medical tests like blood work or brain scans. Well, wait a second. Why don't I just get a blood test or brain scan for this type of problem? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you a little more about how scientists and doctors can assess the brain. There are at least three ways. 
For one, we could take a picture, like a CAT scan or using an MRI machine. Or for two, we could measure the brain's electrical activity, like with an EEG sensor. Or for three, we could put the brain to work, actually having it do what it does best, by asking the person to produce behaviors. This third method is what a neuropsychologist does. Well, isn't it quicker to get a CAT scan that, than to put my brain to work? Why do I need to see a neuropsychologist? Good question. Without establishing what behaviors or thinking skills a person is having trouble with, it's hard to make sense of those other medical tests. A picture is often hard to interpret without knowing what someone's behavior is like. This is because everyone's brains look so different on pictures, and without knowing precisely what behavior problems they're having, it isn't very reliable to only use a picture. So to test behavior, neuropsychologists use specialized tests and other procedures. Like the card games and vocabulary tests that you mentioned before? That's right, plus many, many more. Clinical neuropsychologists use tests and their specialized expertise about conditions that affect the brain to compare someone's behavior or thinking to other people of their same age to see how it may have been affected. Now I see why that's so important. Is that all clinical neuropsychologists do? Of course not. We're a busy group of people. Clinical neuropsychologists often help people make sense of what their diagnoses mean. Like interpreting the results of the test? That's right, plus more. They offer plain language explanations to patients and their families. They also provide follow-up care, coordinate services with other healthcare professionals, and can work with schools or employers to help people do their best in those situations. Additionally, neuropsychologists make recommendations for how to cope with or possibly treat different conditions. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. It's like, now I know I have this problem, where do I go next? That's right. Let us change gears now, and I will tell you about how neuropsychologists can treat or rehabilitate people with brain-based problems. This brings us to our next section on rehabilitation in neuropsychology. According to the, a report of the World Health Organization in 2000, the top cause of disability in the world is brain-based disorders. Wow! I didn't know that! Yes, this highlights the important need for treatments for neuropsychological illnesses. Treatments for brain-based disorders are also important because the thinking problems caused by neuropsychological illnesses often lead people to need help caring for themselves or to be unsafe living alone. What do you mean? Well, for example, take memory problems. If they are bad enough, they can lead people to forget to take their medicine, or worse, forget to turn off the stove. Oh, that would be bad. So, these types of problems can then translate into needing more intense care, which in turn can lead people to have worse quality of life. So, addressing thinking problems caused by neuropsychological illness can help people be safer in their homes and to continue to live independently. This is one reason why rehabilitation is such an important part of what neuropsychologists do. What are some of the typical reasons that a person might need neuropsychological rehabilitation? Well, many people who are candidates for rehabilitation treatment are those who have suffered from a sudden injury or illness. These include problems like stroke and traumatic brain injury. According to the CDC, each year nearly 800,000 people in the United States suffer from a stroke, 
and as many as 1.7 million people experience a traumatic brain injury. Together, that's 2.5 million people a year, which is nearly 1% of the population each year. That's right. So as you can see, these problems are not uncommon at all. There must be specialists to help with recovery. I agree. What are some other typical problems that people with neuropsychological illnesses have? Oftentimes, people with these types of brain problems have difficulty with what's known as self-awareness or being aware of how they are acting and how their behavior may be affecting other people. Much of brain injury rehabilitation is focused on helping patients be aware of their problems or other topics like knowing how their problems might be leading them to act inappropriately around other people. Improving self-awareness is a critical part of most brain injury rehabilitation programs. Are there other problems that people have besides self-awareness? Of course! Patients with all types of neuropsychological problems also commonly have trouble with attention, memory, and language. Also, sometimes one of the five senses is affected such as hearing, smell, or vision, so they may need treatment for those functions. I'm guessing that rehabilitation requires help from doctors, doctors and experts in many fields. You're absolutely right. Neuropsychologists don't do all of this alone. Furthermore, after brain injury or disease, it's not uncommon to have problems with emotions or social skills. Sometimes people become angry too easily, have trouble making small talk, or feel out of place around people that they used to be close to. These are all problems that neuropsychologists can help patients with to improve their quality of life. With these types of emotional problems, I bet it comes in handy that neuropsychologists are trained as psychologists as well. Yes, emotional and social difficulties are perfect examples of how our training in psychology can help us to be prepared for the different types of problems people with brain-based disorders can have. I am curious, what is it like being in rehabilitation? Well, it's hard to predict because programs vary quite a lot. As you might guess, treatment programs generally must be individually tailored to each patient because brain injuries and illnesses are highly variable from person to person. One person may have trouble with language and memory, whereas another person may have trouble with self-awareness and social interactions. I see. Those people would need very different treatment programs. Yes. Also, the treatment program must be designed to address their specific difficulties in a way that the individual person can learn best from the program. For example, if you have a language problem after your brain injury, you could probably not learn very well from reading a book. <laughs> I see what you mean. Rehabilitation treatments can begin immediately after the brain problem develops and should continue through all stages of recovery through to the point where the person has gotten better as they are expected to. During this time, collaborative relationships are formed between neuropsychologists, patients, families, and the many, many other important healthcare professionals in the rehabilitation treatment program. This includes experts like speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, social workers, and neurologists, to name just a few. That sounds like a lot of people to coordinate with. It can be, but this is particularly important to help guide patients and families through the various steps of recovery as some problems improve and new challenges arise.
I see. It sounds like neuropsychologists can be really helpful to patients and families during rehabilitation treatments. I'm curious, how do these treatment programs work? Treatments most often focus on one of the two strategies for rehabilitation, either what's called restoration of function, which aims to bring someone back to doing what they used to be able to do, or by what's called compensatory training, which tries to teach someone how to adapt to their problems and learn different skills so that they can get by in another way. What does restoration of function mean? The idea behind restoration of function comes from what we know about how brain cells grow. Contradictory to what scientists once thought, in the last few decades, neuroscientists have found that our brain cells are sometimes able to keep growing even after childhood. This is called plasticity. Plasticity? What does that mean? Like made of plastic? Not quite. Plastic comes from the Greek word plastikos, which means pliable. When we say the brain has plasticity, we mean that it is malleable, pliable, or changeable. Oh, that makes more sense. So, when there is damage to an area of the brain, sometimes, under the right conditions, brain cells are able to regrow. Rehabilitation treatments can focus on ways to help make the conditions just right for brain cell plasticity. And what was the other type of rehabilitation strategy? You called it compensatory training? Yes, compensatory training focuses on teaching people how to use their other skills to make up for the problems caused by their brain damage. For example, if I have damage to the, to the part of my brain responsible for memory, a rehabilitation specialist could teach me to do things like writing things down to compensate for my memory problems. Compensatory rehabilitation programs help people develop workarounds to make up for the problems caused by their brain damage. Oh, I see. It's not about fixing the brain damage, but learning to live with it. Yeah, you could say that. So as I hope you can tell, rehabilitation is a very fascinating part of what neuropsychologists can do. Helping people recover from brain injury or illness is so important for improving quality of life in these potentially disabling situations. Also, rehabilitation is an area of neuropsychology where our scientific knowledge is growing day by day. New treatments are being developed each year that include new training programs and medicines, so more and more opportunities for research and clinical work are available in this area of neuropsychology. That all sounds very exciting. I agree. Let me change topics to talk now about another field that clinical neuropsychologists can practice in. Forensic Neuropsychology As is true for many professions where someone can be an expert, neuropsychologists occasionally become involved in the legal system. Anytime a neuropsychologist works as an expert in the legal system, they're practicing what is known as forensic neuropsychology. Can you give me an example? There are many different types of situations where a neuropsychologist might be called upon to be an expert in the legal setting. Examples include criminal cases where someone is accused of a crime and suspected of being, quote, mentally insane. Yikes! That's the reaction a lot of people have. I think it's important to note here that the word insane is one used only in the legal setting. Psychologists and other doctors no longer use the word insane because it is not very descriptive and it has a very negative connotation. That is, it can be a hurtful word to call someone. Okay, I'll remember that. 
So, if there's a question about someone accused of a crime being, quote, insane, a legal team may call upon a neuropsychologist to find out more information about how this individual's brain is working. For example, are they able to understand the complexities of the legal system well enough to bring a defense for themselves? Our legal system does not want to have a person stand trial that is unable to defend themselves. This is called, quote, competency to stand trial. And this type of assessment is pretty typical for a forensic neuropsychologist to participate in. In much more rare circumstances, a neuropsychologist might be asked to find out if the person was, quote, insane during the commission of the crime that they are accused of. This is the so-called insanity defense that you've probably heard about from movies or in the news. I have heard of that. It seems like it's on the news a lot. I know it may seem that way, but it's important for me to point out that these cases are very rare. Less than 1% of cases where the insanity defense is even attempted are successful. And usually, in the few cases where the insanity defense is successful, it just means that the individual serves their sentence in a prison hospital instead of a regular prison. But it almost never means that the individual is released back into society before serving their time. But again, this type of situation is pretty rare in the court system. So if that's so rare, what is a more typical type of case for a forensic neuropsychologist to be involved in? A much more common job for a forensic neuropsychologist is to determine the amount or degree of brain damage and emotional suffering sustained by someone who has been in an accident that was someone else's fault. This type of case is pretty common in our legal system. How do you mean? Let us say that you were in a car accident and it was the other driver's fault. Maybe you hit your head on the dashboard, had whiplash, and you were taken to the hospital because you were knocked unconscious. Ouch! After this terrible accident, you end up missing several weeks of work and school, and when you finally return, you notice that you can't seem to be able to think as clearly as before. Sometimes people in this situation decide they want to sue for lost wages or pain and suffering. A forensic neuropsychologist can help determine if brain damage occurred, and if so, how severe and disabling it was. Oftentimes, the prosecution, or the accuser, in this example you, and the defense, or the accused, in this example the driver who hit you, will each have an expert neuropsychologist evaluate you to make sure the assessment is not biased to one side or the other. That sounds complicated. It can be because all of the complicated rules in the legal system. But since both sides of the lawsuit may need to hire an expert forensic neuropsychologist, if you are interested in the legal system, it can be a really interesting way to make a living if you're a neuropsychologist. If I became a forensic neuropsychologist, is that the only type of evaluation I could do? No. While some neuropsychologists become experts in the court system and only practice forensic neuropsychology, many other clinical neuropsychologists become involved in only a few legal cases during their careers, but mainly focus on another area of work most of the time. Oh, I see. Well, it's been interesting to learn about clinical rehabilitation and forensic neuropsychology. You mentioned earlier that you were going to tell me and our audience about other careers in neuropsychology. Aren't there some jobs that don't involve seeing patients? Yes, that's right. Neuropsychologists can work in academic settings or at universities and colleges as researchers, teachers, and mentors for future neuropsychologist trainees. So, teaching the next generation of neuropsychologists? 
That's right. It's very important work. What about the research? I'm glad you asked. This is a very wide open field in neuropsychology. Research neuropsychologists use many of the same techniques and tools that I mentioned when I was telling you about clinical neuropsychology, like specialized tests and brain scans. But often the work is more experimental. Oh, I see. Well, that's what makes it exciting. They are working on the cutting edge of brain science. They can do projects like evaluating new methods of assessing brain function, or evaluating new treatment or rehabilitation programs. Also, research neuropsychologists often work to understand better how the brain works, or what areas of the brain are responsible for different behaviors. That does sound like a wide open field. It really is. The sky is the limit. In fact, we have just barely scratched the surface in this podcast, but luckily, some of my classmates are going to delve more deeply into research topics in their companion podcasts. Oh, okay. So our audience can stay tuned to this channel for more information in the future about research in neuropsychology? That's exactly right. But before we end this podcast, Calloway, I believe you are going to talk about another important issue in all of psychology? That's right. I'm going to tell our audience about the important topic of ethics. As Callie said before, all neuropsychologists are also psychologists. Because of this, to live up to the expectations of what it means to be a psychologist, and this means adhering to the code of ethics. In this sidebar, I will explain what this means in practical terms. No matter the chosen profession, all neuropsychologists just as all psychologists, must adhere to ethical standards set forth by the American Psychological Association. This code is known as the Ethical Principles of Psychologists and Code of Conduct. This document lays out six general principles to aspire to along with several ethical standards that contain enforceable rules for professional conduct and behavior. This ethical code was adopted to provide a standard for the American Psychological Association and for other organizations, such as state licensing boards, to use to define expectations and regulations for the professional behavior of psychologists. For example, the licensing board in your state may have adopted this code of ethics as the standard by which they judge psychologists in your state. The ethical code applies to any work-related activities of psychologists. These could include counseling, research, teaching, consulting, or any other professional activity of psychologists. I will briefly review the six general principles so that you will have a sense of what the ethical expectations are for psychologists and neuropsychologists. Principle A, competence. All psychologists must recognize the boundaries of their competencies. For example, they cannot claim to be an expert at something that they do not have adequate training in. This is particularly relevant for specializations in psychology, like neuropsychology. Unless someone has gone through appropriate training in neuropsychology, they cannot ethically claim to be a neuropsychologist. Principle B, integrity. As is generally expected of most professionals, psychologists are expected to have integrity. To quote the code, psychologists are, quote, honest, fair, and respectful, and quote, promote integrity in the science, teaching, and practice of psychology, and they do not make statements that are false, misleading, or deceptive. Principle C, professional and scientific responsibility. 
this principle says that psychologists have a responsibility to do what is best, what is in the best interest of those people who receive their services, such as therapy clients, students, or scientific audience. This includes things like admitting to conflicts of interest and not taking credit for work that was not their own. Principle D, respect for people's rights and dignity. Psychology as a field focuses on the well-being of people. To quote the code, psychologists respect to the fundamental rights, dignity, and worth of all people. This includes respecting privacy, confidentiality, and autonomy of all people, particularly clients and research participants. This principle also encourages psychologists to not participate in or condone discrimination based on, quote, age, gender, race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, sexual orientation, disability, language, and socioeconomic status. Principle E, concern for others' welfare. Psychologists strive to uphold the rights and welfare of those they serve. They do this by avoiding exploitation or misleading others. Further, this principle includes a recommendation for resolving professional conflicts in a way that, quote, avoids or minimizes harm. Principle F, social responsibility. Last but not least, this principle guides psychologists to be aware of their social responsibility. It recommends sharing knowledge about psychology publicly to, quote, contribute to human welfare and to work as possible to mitigate the causes of human suffering. Also, this standard encourages psychologists to offer up a portion of their services pro bono or without compensation as they are able in order to share the benefits of psychology with those that cannot afford them. So, these are the ethical standards that all psychologists and neuropsychologists should strive to uphold in their professional lives. This concludes the ethics sidebar portion of this podcast. That was really thorough, Callaway. Thanks for walking us through that. You're welcome, Callie. Well, it's about that time. We've come to the end of our podcast. Before we go, I want to give you some quick information about what to do next if you're interested in becoming a neuropsychologist. Good point. I assume I have to go to some extra school. That's right. After you earn your bachelor's degree, you will need to attend a PhD graduate program in psychology or a PsyD program, usually clinical psychology, but you could also possibly study counseling psychology. How long does a PhD program take? Well, on average, about five years. And then to graduate, you must complete an extra one-year internship, so about six years before you can earn your doctoral degree. What do you do while you're on your internship? An internship is an intense year of training program of clinical work. It prepares trainees for licensure in psychology and provides another opportunity for specialized training in neuropsychology. What comes after the internship? Are you ready to start working as a neuropsychologist? (laughs) Not so fast. After graduating with a PhD, there are several more recommended trainings before starting to practice independently as a neuropsychologist. Typically, it is recommended to complete a two-year residency fellowship, which is sometimes called a postdoc which just stands for Postdoctoral Residency Fellowship. This extra training allows you to get the hours of supervision needed to get licensed in most states. Also, it is required if you want to go on to be board certified, which is an extra qualification that is becoming more and more popular as a way of neuropsychologists to demonstrate their specialty credentials. 
Oh, I see. Adding that all up, it sounds like it takes about eight years of school after earning a bachelor's degree. That's right, so it's not for the faint of heart, but I think it's easily worth it to become part of such an interesting profession. And this brings us to the end of our podcast. Thank you for joining us over the last half hour. I really hope you learned something about the fascinating field of neuropsychology. If you want to learn more, there are many websites you can visit, including the website for an organization of students in neuropsychology. Just point your browser to www.div40-anst.com. That stands for the Association of Neuropsychology Students and Training, which is part of Division 40 of the American Psychological Association. One more time, that's www.div40-anst.com. Their page has links to their own website on what is neuropsychology, as well as information about how to get involved in this exciting field. Well, that is all for now. This is Callie Tyner and Callaway Johnson signing off from the University of Florida. Goodbye.